Hi, you're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. As international adoptees, everyone knows someone whose adoption records were either falsified, manipulated, switched, or never existed in the first place. In fact, accurate, complete records are practically the exception to the rule. For myself, according to my adoption file, my birth father died in a tragic motorbike accident when I was a baby. But as an adult, I discovered that this was a lie. Some adoptees have hardly any information at all. While most people take their birth date, exact age, place of birth, and parents' names for granted, some adoptees fight for this information for their whole lives. The Korean Adoption Program has been running for almost 70 years now, but it's as difficult as ever to obtain basic information about ourselves and the circumstances of our adoptions. This year marks the first annual Adoption Truths Day, which seeks to raise awareness and advocate for Korean adoptee rights. The event has been created by various adoptee and ally organizations, mostly based in Korea, including Koroot, 325 Camera, and Kumfa. The online conference, which will be held tomorrow, features speakers from around the world who will discuss the unethical practices of the Korean adoption system, including the ways in which children are relinquished and adopted, how their records are created and stored by agencies, and subsequently, the accessibility of accurate information. Today, we share the first half of our conversation with three amazing adoptees, Bunyong Han, Jenny Na, and Kimura Byul Natalie Lemoine. My French pronunciation is terrible and I apologize. Each of them is a leader and pioneer of the global Korean adoptee community. Each of them is a unique force of nature who has tirelessly worked to raise awareness of adoption issues, advocate for and support fellow adoptees, and push for social change in Korea. In this episode, we talk about Adoption Truths Day and the ongoing work to fight for adoptee rights and recognition of historic injustices. One last thing before we start, we'd like to give a shout out to our latest podcast patron, Chris. Thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate your support. Bunyang Han is an assistant professor at Hankook University of Foreign Studies. Her research interests include adoption, unwed mothers, family welfare, and the welfare state. She was adopted from Korea to Denmark and returned to Korea in the early 2000s. She has been actively involved with the adoptee community over the past two decades. Jenny Na is one of the six founding members of Adoptee Solidarity Korea, otherwise known as ASK. ASK was a grassroots organization that sought to raise awareness on the root causes of adoption, affect change in Korean adoption policy, strengthen the adoptee community, and create a space for critical dialogue. ASK started in 2004 and retired in 2017. It was the first organization to look at adoption critically, and it was the first organization to file a petition with the Korean government in 2007 to end intercountry adoption. ASK could not have existed without the groundbreaking work of Kimora Byol, Tobias Hubinet, and other pioneers in our global Korean adoptee community. Last and certainly not least, Kimora Byol Natalie Lemoyne is a conceptual multimedia feminist artist who works on identities, including diaspora, ethnicity, colorism, post-colonialism, immigration, gender, and expresses it with calligraphy, paintings, digital images, poems, videos, and collaborations. Kimora Lemoyne's work has been exhibited, screened, published, and supported nationally and internationally. 
As curator, Kimura has developed projects that give voice and visibility to minorities. As an adoptee activist archivist, Z is working on ACA, or Adoptees Cultural Archives, to document the history of adoptees' culture through media and the arts. My name is Bunyang. <laughs> um, I've been in Korea for 20 years, I think, um, and involved with adoption most of the time. I'm Jenny, and I live in Korea. And I too have been involved in adoptee activism for a long time. Um, I'm Kimura, and my Korean name is uh, Cho Mihi. Uh, I'm a Korean adoptee from Belgium, but I live in Montreal on the Churchage Isle, uh, Turtle Island of Montreal. Thanks so much to all of you for meeting with us. We're really, really excited and. Honestly, I'm like a, a little bit nervous because of like you're all so ama amazing and have so much experience and have done so much for the community and it's it's a little bit like oh, um, I will I will fanboy. You're like the, the founding four people of the adoptee community. <laughs> oh my god! No. <laughs> But there are only three of us. Who <laughs> was the other person? <laughs> Anaya, method. Miguk salam, Anila. You have to study math. <laughs> And also, it, it's kind of like victory because we've been trying to convince Jenny to come on the podcast oh, <laughs> um, for for a while yeah. now with with various episode proposals. Um, I'm just going to mute yeah, myself we, we, throughout this entire <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Then you will have to return for a special one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> only you. Only you. No, I could say I was there. There would be proof that I was there. <laughs> I took a picture of the screen and I will send it to you. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Not my hair. Not my hair. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a bit of a blurb about the day, but if one of you can sort of start telling us about how you chose the term Adoption Truths Day and why the date that you chose as well. We didn't really choose the date. The date um, has been decided by law in Korean adoption law. Um, there is a thing like Adoption Day. So for nine years, um, we, I guess, have... Um, refer to that as single mom's day because part of adoption is also to maybe help people at risk before they end up in the adoption system. Um, luckily, the single moms have been able to really advocate, advocate for themselves and their um, situation conditions despite everything have improved over the past nine years. So now we even have a single parent day, which is May 10th. The day before Adoption Day, um, the First Lady explained it um, you know, as coming from a welfare perspective or family welfare perspective. You know, you want to prioritize the natural families over the system. So we have that May 10th and May 11th is Adoption Day. We have reconceptualized it or renamed it to Adoption Tuesday. I think talking with, among ourselves, we know that 
there are so many stories that have not been told um, and even more that are not being accepted, even when they are told. So that's really what we wanted. Um, some of the informal information, um, the experiences that are floating around in the adoptive community, we wanted to share that with a larger audience. Can someone also um, tell us a little bit about uh, the demands um, of the Korean government and Korean society that were included in the, the Declaration on Adoption Truths Day? There's a, there's a whole list of demands, um, and I'll just maybe talk about a couple of them. One of them is a demand for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Adoption to provide a full accounting of the injustices in the adoption system. Um, another one is a call for a, a publicly controlled archiving system for our records, adoption records, and the preservation of related documents. We also ask for a Korean society to legitimize the experiences of those who have been silenced and socially ostracized by the adoption system. Um, so that includes adoptees and our natural families. And then we also ask for Korean society to recognize the abuses inherited in the adoption program. I think these are not really new demands or new issues, um, but they really rarely get the attention that we feel they should get. Um, I recall a seminar at the National Assembly, I think in 2004 or five, where Kimura spoke um, about archives and made this very um, brilliant, simple suggestion. You know, you have all the adoption files in one central location. You employ an adoptee from each country, so support and advice information can be delivered in the adoptee's native language. So that is 15, 16 years ago. And it still seems really, I think, like the only suggestion that makes sense. Um, obviously, it has not happened, and it is very far from happening. Um, I would say that services um, have been um, even more scattered. Because as a um, capitalistic market, you know, it's been opened up. So, so on one side, I mean, getting the message out there means that more people have become involved. Um, so there is a range of individuals and organizations now who operate under a label of post-adoption services. That has done nothing to help us centralize uh, Earth Family Search, for example. It has not been helpful in terms of making a standard for archiving, for search, or for anything. Rather, I would say that the field now is even more... Uh, it's more difficult to navigate because there are more bodies, individuals, organizations to navigate. And you don't really know what you get, what you can demand. Um, 
So now that we're here with Kimura also, I think we just need to keep in mind that was said so many years ago. Nothing has been done. And I think, you know, we have, there are all of these records um, that adoptees, individual adoptees like Kimura have collected um, that are part of our collective adoption history. And there's nowhere to put them there's no central place to put them. And so they live in the homes of the people who have collected them. Kimura has some, Tobias has some, other individual people have some, but there's no place where you can go to see all of it. Because my dream would be to have a central place, maybe one in Europe, one in uh, America East, one East and one East Coast, maybe one in Australia, that and one in Korea too, but it's like would be branches of the Korean part, so people would have access and um, really for adoptees to know more about the history and record. For me, I have them here, but uh, I still have to. Uh, my dream would be to digitalize them, uh, but not like in Korea because in Korea you type everything and then even you go to city hall you have a paper, but you don't have the picture, you don't have the notes, and that's uh, what is missing. And for me, I have many notes, over uh, more than 700 uh, cases that I worked on, and it's really uh, it, it's really what not the adoption agency is keeping, and they don't really care. They just want to make money, and they give um, information bit by bit, and forcing birth parents to uh, be a member of the, uh, the organization and force them to pay a membership so they can have maybe one bit of information, but it's not legal for me. It's, uh, I don't know, in French, it's retention, retention of information. So it's, uh, I want uh, the law to uh, protect uh, adoptees from those kind of practice. Yeah. Kimura, do, do you mean that you have um, over 700 records for, for different adoptees that you've yeah. assisted over the years? Yeah, over, I mean, yeah, because uh, for me, it's like I don't go to adoptees and I say I can help you. I, um, I'm here. People know that I exist if they want to. And uh, I only uh, accept files if I have a discussion with them also because I want to know where they are at, what they want. It's, it's not just accepting a request, but uh, also uh, telling them how to read a file, also what what is missing. If um, it's, it's about education, I feel also because I mean, many, it's not because you're an adopted that you're interested in adoption issues or whatever, but if uh, they request a file of um, a research, it's because they've been trying by other system, legal system, or what they think it was uh, uh, the mainstream system. And then for me, I'm like uh, the Colombo kind of uh, a researcher or like detective and I go different ways because over the 13 years I've been in Korea uh, I learned about the whole system what adoption agency is working with what country in what year 
even the family name sometimes has something to do the way of uh, numbering uh, adoptees, what agen agencies work with what country at what time, also when, example, Australia started in 83, uh, the adoption from Korea and not before. So why uh, some, some people have uh, been legally adopted, some not before 73. So that's the whole system also what orphanages is working with what uh, what organization or uh, agencies and uh, so it's so many things it's like open not open adoption but also depending on the adoptee law on international adoption example in the Netherlands you can have the name of your birth parents on the file and still being adopted and as a close adoption but not in Belgium so I feel that in Belgium we have more trauma because we didn't even know the birth family when adoptees remember them. So it's so many things that I've been uh, observing over discovering with adoptees. And so that's why for me, the my best dream is it would be to digitalize all the files that I have at least. I have a sheet with all the, the main information, family name, birthday and where they were found something that maybe some adoptees and example like the simple thing is like because i kept the file is some people because of the covid situation contact me 10 years after and i still have the file i still have information some refund the family again and so but i i'm lucky that i had good contact in korea some people helped me there because i'm not there but i still know who to contact and who is willing to help. This is a lot about networking. And and um, I, of course, it's like 10 years after some people, some parents die, but it's not, they didn't know because the, the communication got lost. So, so, but also I advise adoptees, if they meet birth family, to have maybe the family register number, the ID number of the person so they can trace them later or something. It's like the to record, to take picture now with cell phone. It's all kind of advice that maybe some adoptees would not know because they are so excited to meet birth families or they, they, they don't think straight, if I can say. So it's all this stuff that because I've been uh, guiding and being there for some adoptees, I can know what is also the, what can be also a meeting and the rejection also, the language problem, the, um, mentality problem uh so all this kind of stuff so yeah. i think it's important to have that and i wish we can form some people social worker post-adoption to really help them because some korean are very nice but they are so emotional in different ways of being an adoptee and sometimes they try to because they are navigating in the korean society they are not aware of what the adoptee is thinking or uh, has to deal with emotionally and also culturally and linguistically. So the, all this kind of stuff, I, I wish we could have an academy of helping adoptees, but really the best way for the adoptees, because normally being adoptees is for the best, it's not for the worst. So, And, you know, those are just uh, examples of cases where people could be found but then there is a, no, a whole other category of records that have been 
falsified or manipulated or switched um, to make a person, a child, an orphan so that they are available for adopted. And adop- yeah, adopted. so they're available for but I think many of our cases like that, and that's what I could find also in the in my files. It's like many adoptees have name changes or change or like a birth year, birth because uh, the parents want that the child being like for myself is three years different. So, and uh, I know that in my family, one is like one year older, one year younger, two years. So it's like they don't care. We just uh, merchandise. For them, for, to please adoptive parents. So for me, sometimes it's with adoptees, it's not because you're an adoptee, you're aware of all this stuff. And even though your adoption was very good, so many are, uh, are not willing to understand the global picture of it. Yeah. Can I ask when you sort of had the idea that um, you wanted to start this process of archiving Mm-hmm. Because now I'm half a century, so I think it's time before I die. <laughs> I have uh, maybe <laughs> I want I want to have everything uh, saved somewhere. I don't know. I have many books. I have many movies and stuff. So um, I did a website uh, with most uh, cultural information, but also I really. Uh, I don't know if it's possible one day that I want to write about the search process and giving maybe 10 Ks and what happened also in details and really say what went wrong. What It's like I, I met some uh, birth family, they commit suicide because the whole adoption stopped. They tried to search and the adoption agency was really shit to them. And, and uh, the adoptee, after we told them something else, and it's, it's many drama and it's um, pointless. I mean, it's really who does it serve? Only the adoption agency because they did wrong. And I think they need to be punished in some ways, like being fine, fine, and that money goes to adoptee uh, association. Or it's not just for finding someone, but it's like to to use that money to help mm. to make a better system. <laughs> I don't mean to. Oh, sorry, Hannah. No, this is this is probably just a really obvious question. But do, do you think that basically the adoption agencies um, they're reluctant to hand over the records to some um, centralized? Yeah, of course, place? because there's so many lies. Because and it's they have yes, so many. It's info. just and yeah, they have because to, they've been so unethical. Yeah, and uh, it's really like. Uh, I have, uh, when I came in Korea in 93, I was, uh, I I was very naive also. I was like 25, but I was not that young, but I still believe that, um, okay, I I just want to know about Korea, maybe women's uh, situation to understand. But then I went to Holt and I found out how they use us. uh, And I I met birth families coming and searching for us. to have information and how they ask adoptees who were volunteering there to say the good story and how much we are used and reused again and for, for their own sake and to make even more money. That's why they have an adoption, uh, they have a travel agency because they make money out of us also. They have mileage. They, they can, they're not taxable on land. So that's why they buy land. It's like Ilsan is all about adoptee money. So it's, it's like really how um, I really 
feel that uh, the Korean government has to give a real pardon and really recognize that for me, it's not that it's going to save my life or something, but it's really a, a system and practice of uh, international adoption that has to be uh, finished, uh, I guess. It's like, uh, uh, it's, I don't think that uh, closed adoption is a solution. It can be an open adoption and adopt- preparing better adoptive parents to be open to that idea and only they can adopt if they are willing to accept our background, our birth family situation and not lying and saying that we are, we are like just uh, xenophobic or whatever. It's like people and you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's really like uh, how our adoptive parents can be so racist and not uh, being aware of it and, and maybe uh, not uh, it's like uh, uh, blind, come on, this uh, colorblind, colorblind, you know, it's like uh, just because they can, and also seeing that we are all adopted, uh, maybe 99% to white people, why is that also? It's like, can't we be adopted to uh, Asian families who also request, but who is doing the system, who's in Australia is choosing the families, uh, who's approving the final, uh, okay, those parents can adopt and the Chinese, we know they cannot adopt a Korean because, but why a white can adopt us because we can be white, but we cannot be Chinese. You know, it's like, it's very, it's very colonizing uh, system still. And people don't want to admit and many adoptees don't recognize that because they've been well adopted. So they don't want to think about that. There's so many layers of, you know, I'm, I can blah, blah forever. <laughs> I think one of the things that uh, you just said was, uh, is important. And that is the idea that you know, other adoptees, it's important for other adoptees to recognize these, the things about the adoption system that are, are wrong. And even, you know, not just for themselves, but for the larger kind of global community of adoptees I think it's important and that's kind of why I I do this work is because it's not for for me I don't see it as being for me I see it as being for us as adoptees us as a global group of of people who have been adopted and I I I wish people I wish more adoptees would recognize that and participate in actions to change and correct that system. Um. But we're so colonized also, even we have to deconstruct our own colonization. And then after we have to know and uh, take the time to understand the other country of maybe birth or or origin. So it's a whole process. It takes time, but it's also willing to, to learn something. And many adoptees are racist too. It's like it's been, maybe they're not racist toward Asian, but they're racist toward black or like like colored people um, as uh, being always raised by white people. So it's maybe not making the best citizen of the world, you know. I wanted to pick up uh, Kimora on the thing you spoke about scanning all your papers and. Um, 
I came across this report from the National Assembly Research Services from 2017, where they analyzed the implementation of the adoption law that came into effect in 2012. One of the things they talk about, obviously, is adoption records. And we now have access, but that access has been limited to these 51 pieces of information. And I think that really shows how powerful the adoption agencies are, that it's not unconditional access. You know, we get information that they feel they want to give us. We get maybe a name and a little bit of this and that. But then learning from you and learning from others and just seeing how things work in Korea, you know, there is so much information uh, giving besides that. I mean, and we have. Maybe not me, but definitely I have friends who also, that they are relics, you know, and there are pictures. There is information on the backside of the documents and all of this. Yeah. And this is excluded. So I think when we talk about records um, and in relation to our Adoption Tuesday conference, you know, we have been able to um, invite Alice Diver, who's also um, an adoption scholar. Um, she talks about origins. And I think that's important that we accept as adoptees and uh, adoption social workers and society accept all of this is about our origins. It's not just about mm -hmm. getting mom and dad's name. It's so yeah. much more. It has value to us that we know the hospital that we were maybe treated at, the police station who found us the foster mother, father, before we were adopted, all of this, this is part of our history. We don't want it to be limited to 51 pieces of information that is convenient for the adoption sees to hand over to us. Um, so it really needs to be opened up. Yeah. I wanted to ask, with the parallel demands in the declaration, the Adoption Truth Day Declaration, with the archive and the truth um, and reconciliation uh, objective, perhaps this is a really basic question, but how do you see these two things kind of in relationship to each other? So the truth and reconciliation process and the publicly controlled archive? Well, you need the the archive and you need the records to prove that there is a need for a truth and reconciliation commission and you need evidence in order to bring all of the past sort of injustices and things to light and if you don't have records to show that then you cannot go very far in that process. That's why I think Bunyong in 2006 or 12, I don't know, uh, when I was gone, I left my file to some, I think, uh, Jane Trenka. Mm. And they were mm -hmm. working on some cases that I had to try to make some case for getting justice. We submitted a report to the ombudsman, right. um, a small number yeah. of cases, mm -hmm. simply just to illustrate yeah. you know, what we all know, that our birthdays are fake, our names are fake. Uh, we have not been relinquished by the person who signs. Our medical records have been falsified. Um, the ombudsman, as they concluded, you know, that was not great. <laughs> but also they can't do much about it. 
And I think what we want to say with um, our adoption work in general, and maybe with the declaration in specific, is that, yes, you can do something. I mean, we might have been adopted for decades ago, um, but definitely things can be done today and things need to be done and changed today. One of them is to erect an archive, and I think that would also really send the message that we that the society, the government, the politicians, lawmakers recognize that this is important, mm-hmm. recognize that this is a social issue. This is not one adoptee here and there, but it's something that the country really needs to address and take care of. Um, For me, I want to do... Well, a- that- oh, go. oh, no. Oh, well, I was just going to say that um, in terms of recognizing that it's not just one adoptee, I think that's why it's important for us to kind mm-hmm. of gather and build a movement mm-hmm. or yeah. a, a larger collective body, a critical mass of people to push for access to our records and to push for a, a historical accounting of, of our history. Um, because as Bunyang just said, like the, the agencies really have a lot of power. They are the ones who have influenced the law the most. And that's, you know, our voices are small compared to that. I was just curious, um, again, like pardon my ignorance, but has Korean society, um, have there been like similar truth and reconciliation commissions and public apologies um, for for other issues in, in Korea's history? Um, have you seen this kind of thing? Is there a precedent in Korea? Uh, I think the Gwangju, the Gwangju massacre, uh, and maybe the Jeju uh, also. But they were Korean. It's a national thing. It's not international, and because they really be- believe that it's for our good that we were sent overseas. So that's uh, how international. And I think it would be normally a dream thing that to think that our adoptive country contribute to that too. I mean, it is. It takes two to tango. Mm. You know, and I know that. Um, why so many adoptees in America and uh, so many in uh, in Belgium for that little country is because uh, those countries uh, help Korea too. It's like America is the 55th state of America or something like that. I don't know. But it's not innocent. It's, it's like why in Sweden you have uh, so many adoptees is because they build hospital in, in uh, Korea and SWS is Swedish and, you know, it's... Why? It's always a reason. It's not uh, just, uh, oh, I want to send, uh, in, uh, I don't know, like in Finland and because Finland didn't really help Korea. So they don't want to send there. It's also a purpose and a reason. So a payback from Korea to, with children and as a money, as an exchange. But this, this is not only with Korea, it's also Vietnam. It's like France and Vietnam, it's colonization. It's, it's not, in, it's not uh, out of nowhere. So if uh, I think Tobias studied that very well, but I think he can explain better than, than me at least. 
but I think uh, if you see the, the source and the roots of why international adoption works so well with Korea is because there is a reason there. And we are the one to pay the price. Even men, I think now adoptees are better adopted than before. But for me, I think as a uh, as not a researcher, I wish that some people would do research about adoptees who knew the story in the fight and they were right. They meet the birth family and people who got denied or had trouble and difficulties to find and do some research about how the evol mental evolution could be or how they they build their identity and but there is no research about that because then it would prove that the whole system is wrong. Bunyang, can I go back to something you were saying earlier, which I that things are increasingly dispersed, that there's like so many different organizations and bodies that work in the adoption and post-adoption space. Um, do you feel that that kind of goes against this sort of progress narrative that things are getting better, that everything is becoming more legitimate and above board? Uh, I would say the sheer number of people involved is not, is not necessarily a negative thing. Um, obviously, it, it's good that more people are paying attention and participating. Um, but social welfare, the field in Korea is a private field. Um, it's also for money. So it's really just different individuals, organizations competing for the same a limited amount of customers, I guess you can say, and without any guidelines or standards. I think a lot of adoptees go into this as post-adoption services without really knowing what to expect. Um, service providers are not being held accountable. We'll see a lot of this so-called services are for free, which really means that you as a receiver, you don't um, set high standards, right? You don't come in with big expectations. You don't um, allow yourself to be very critical because you do receive all these services for free. Um, I think that's a huge problem that uh, aspects of our lives that are so crucial, really, um, we have to rely on strangers <laughs> and, and, you know, who, are, who might or might not do a proper job, who might or might not actually be professional qualified to do this. Um, Post-adoption services should not be a hobby that people can just participate in and volunteer to do on a Saturday when they have time. Um, Post-adoption services, I think, is, is really, really important to adoptees. Um, if... Uh, people engage in this without really the courtesy and respect to us to take the time to learn about a history. Um, I would prefer that they didn't. Um, it's not right that the field is being dominated or dictated by, um, by the lowest standard, I would say. Um, the government... Sorry? For me, I, I think even a Hyundai car or Hyundai TV have a better after-sales service. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, hello, I Korea, mean, you can do better. <laughs> usually, there would be um, like a bar that you have to meet, you know, that there are certain things that you have to do. Um, 
I think what often gets misunderstood or maybe screwed in the debate is, well, we were sent out of Korea. That means anything related to Korea is a plus now and can be labeled as post-adoption services. Um, I do not agree with that. Not any Korean can help us, even if they speak Korean. Not any Korean should participate in birth family search simply because they live here. No, that there's really a lot of think, training um, as a human being, understanding for adoptees, understanding of our history. Um, again, this should not be, we should not let, um, we should not let others just do this because they would like to or because it looks good on their resume. Um, Korea, the Ministry of Health and Welfare, each year they hand out awards and prizes for people in the field. Um, this year, among others, a woman who has been able to reunite eight adoptees and kept contact with them over the years were awarded for her efforts. To be honest, none of us has... None of us has helped less than eight friends, I mean, within the past week or something. I mean, eight people is really, really nothing. But she has a name now, and she's been in the news, and it looks really good. Um, but there is no, she's not being held to any standard. Um, she's not accountable. You know, she can be there or not for the adoptee when things are not great, you know, at 2 a.m. in the night. So to conflate, like, I want to be a nice person, I can translate for you with adoption services. I don't think that's just acceptable, really. It kind of ties in with, um, I think, Bunyang, you wanted to talk a little bit about the reforms to the current laws. Um, sorry, the current law, which really maintains all the onus and the I guess the the power in adoption agencies as opposed to um, places which would have more government yes. regulation. Um, so with the law revision in eleven that came into effect that came into effect uh, from two thousand and twelve, um, one of the been very active and you know taught us a lot, helped us a lot, supported us a lot. Um, is Horami, a lawyer um, and professor in law now. Um, she presented at a conference uh, in 2018 where she, she presents an alternative to, at that time, the current um, adoption process. So I think what most of us as adoptees, we don't realize is that up until 2012, Adoptions agencies have been in complete control of the entire adoption process. This goes from intake and registration, um, family history, uh, matching, uh, paperwork, uh, information to all the parties, uh, health checks, um, visa. F4 visa. Yeah, all of but all of until the end. To, yeah, all of this, all of this, the adoption agencies have been in charge. Um, the only thing that they have had to do is at the end of the year, report the numbers to the local government. Then what happened in 12 was that 
Through that whole process, one independent body, which was the family court, was, I guess, included or inserted. Um, as they did their work, they found a number of issues where the adoption process is not done according to the Korean law, which obviously is not acceptable. It would be illegal, you think. Um, and from that, um, the whole discussion of the baby box emerged because Family court found that adoption agencies in many instances simply just don't register the individuals that they want to channel into the adoption system. You cannot not do that according to Korean law. You do have to register children. Korea does not have a um, universal birth registration system. Uh, also, adoption agencies have been lobbying against that. So maybe that's part of the explanation as to why that doesn't exist. Um, but you do have to register children. Um, they just have not, or they have, say, they have bended the rules. So they have registered the children, but as we know from ourselves and our friends, um, they've simply just falsified the information, or they have um, have claimed that they don't have complete information, and that's why. Really, so many of us end up with records that are not um, truthful. I wanted to say something about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we talked about like half an hour ago. <laughs> um, Korea started the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2006. But then it was canceled uh, by Emeon Park in 2010. Last year, politicians voted on it again. And so they have um, enlarged or deepened the scope of cases that they can investigate. Um, and it actually includes um, brothers' homes, which some adoptees might be familiar with. Um, I was um, child welfare institution said in quotation it ran from seventy five to eighty seven Well, I guess this came to the attention when thirty five of the children escaped uh, and they talked about sexual abuse and kind of as an internation camp. I mean there were cheap labor over a twelve year period, five hundred have been documented to have passed away. Um, they have investigated the place, um, but not really thoroughly. Uh, we also know that 12 children from this home were adopted overseas to Norway, France, the U.S., and Australia through Holt, through SWS, and through Eastern. So as an adoptee, then that case certainly also has some interest. Um, whether that would lead to investigation of the adoption system in general, I don't know, but um, adoption really intersects with so many aspects of Korean society. Um, and we now have at least this very concrete tidewater for institution that will be investigated under the Truth and, Reconcil Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I hope that's something that we will all maybe follow, keep an eye on. Um, obviously, it's always a challenge for us because it's in Korea, information is delivered to us in Korean. Um, but I hope we will 
keep maybe making efforts to um, access the information, you know, to share that, um, to educate ourselves. Um, Over the years, um, you know, over this period that that you've been involved uh, in adoptee activism, that this is a question for for all of you, I guess. Um, have you seen significant shifts in the Korean media's portrayal of adoption issues, or in Korean society's general understanding? of adoption for me i guess uh, back in 1989 when in 89 when i came first in korea then 91 was uh, the movie uh, suzanne brings adeline made a big i think impact of uh, seeing uh, adoptees not being especially well treated by white people so it was a questioning, uh, why do we send our children to those kind of homes? That was uh, the Korean drama of the year, kind of. And then uh, there's the time I found my birth family. And uh, of course, for, for Korean, it was like very rare that adoptees would come back. And want, they didn't really understand why we want to find our birth family, because for them, we were well adopted and we were like, we were so lucky to be adopted in the West by white people. So people coming back and questioning and wanting to know more about Korea, in the same time, they were so happy that we come back for individual, I would say. And then in the, uh, in the same time, they were wondering what went wrong with us, why do we don't want to live in the West, because it was their dream, the American dream, you know. <clears throat> So it was, uh, I think, in the early 90s, it was that kind of uh, ambiance uh, uh, thought of the Korean society. And then it was individual stories, sometimes uh, on Lady Kyungyang or like a women magazine, a story of an adoptee here and there. But then I think when I uh, established my first adoptee association back in 1994 with the Euro-Korean League Korean branch, because I had made Euro-Korean League in 1991 in Belgium. So that was a reason why I could do in Korea. And it was well made, uh, by, uh, made by, um, covered by the media. So it was the first time that I really talked to Korean media, not as an individual, individual story, but as an association. So to know that, uh, of course, I met more in the beginning, I met more uh, European from Sweden, the Nordic countries, uh, because I think they were speaking more English than the Francophone country from Belgium and maybe France. Uh, and I met them at uh, the Korean language. That's where we could meet each other and say, oh, I know this adoptee in my class. Uh, he's from there and so on. So that's how we start to connect and of course, uh, being more and more adoptees wanting to return and learn the language for more than three months or a year made an uh, impact that we were existing on the Korean land as simple foreigners first. But then making that association also helped for me because I was from Europe. I just thought about Europe. And that's the first time I met an American. So I didn't really think about America as a European. 
but more and more. But Americans were coming to teach English, which was very different from me not speaking English and not well enough. Uh, I, I learned English in, in Korea, so it was a very different thing. So I think it was a division between uh, non-English speaker and uh, because the Nordic countries speak better English than the Southern uh, European also. And uh, it was making uh, a big difference the financially why people would stay or get a job. So I would uh, see that in uh, Korea in the mid-90s, uh, late 90s, the stress of adoptees from Europe was very different from American because often they get a job, a steady job. Uh, but the, the we had one common uh, problem is like we wanted to stay in Korea, not as a simple foreigner. That's why we work on the F4 visa. So uh, uh, in 1996, I start to raise the question of why are we simple foreigner like Ibangin, uh, Ibangin. So the, if you know Korean, the Chinese character is very more different. But it, it was make, to make a point because I, I, work, I study uh, in advertising, so the words are very important to be catchy and for people. That's why I made uh, our adoptees, our foreigners campaign. Uh, and then I, I, I met uh, Kate Hurst uh, in 1998 or seven, And then uh, she's a Korean adoptee from Michigan. And she was very uh, enervé, uh, ang- angry, adoptive. <laughs> but it was the good anger that really helped to, to have the energy to make uh, Kim Lee Park, which was the first Korean adoptee artist group. We were three officially, but we were really two to run the, the thing. So we made those campaign stickers. We, we stick them close to hold uh, our adoptee, our alien. And so this, it was a start of... Uh, trying to get a, a, a special status for adoptees to be able to stay without, because we heard also many stories that uh, Korean-American adoptees were not well treated at job, and then they were dependent on, on the visa they had, uh, the teaching job. So we really want to uh, skip that or evit to to not uh, put them in that kind of situation. So the F4 visa was uh, starting to be built for Kyopo, for uh, second generation, uh, not adoptees, but then uh, we want to make sure that because we were born after 47, and so all adoptees, obviously overseas adoptees, were born in Korea after 47 because the, the adoption started officially in 53. So we could be in that kind of law. So it's like we work with Hesong. Um, Hesong Welfare, which was an independent uh, social um, uh, organization, small uh, uh, association, that uh, one of the they were both speaking English, so it was easy to communicate with them, and they were really helping us to have. Uh, we had one thousand signature uh, from Korean to try to uh, because we need hundred, uh, we need uh, a thousand signature to pass the bill. So we got that, and then after the word Ibiang A, Ibiang, was written in the law, and then that's how in December 1st, we could, 1999, we could get. So from that time, we, we thought a lot about that as an adopti- adult adoptees returning. And then after, we, we thought some people wanted to become Korean. 
as uh, identity issues also. But it was the problem of uh, for male adoptees uh, who have uh, to do uh, ad- uh, military service. So it was a gender thing. So, uh, but after I think we we were always treated as uh, children, like Ibiang A and not Ibiang In. So I also raised and maybe had many interviews and always tell, telling them it's not Ibiang A, we are Ibiang In. Don't talk to us like we are kids. And this this is uh, all the understanding of Korean society. So. I think uh, for me, liking to play with words and uh, words are so important to define someone. That's why we work that. And some, I think it changed a little bit to see us as adults, especially now with gray hair and stuff. It's like some, many adoptees are older than the Korean who try to help us, but normally it's something about age also. So it's, it's like at the time we, we were, I mean, I think we were, t- for me, I was 20, 30, 35 and, so we were still kind of uh, younger than them officially than the people who were 40, 45, who were working in the social system. So it's the evolution, I don't know, because I left in 2006. So I was so, I couldn't see, I couldn't see a Korean in my face anymore. Like, uh, it was terrible. Uh, it's not that I hated Korean, but it's, uh, it was too much for me. So when I went to Montreal, it's like I didn't want to meet any Korean for two years. But I, I came back to Korea for exhibitions for only art purpose. But the mentality and everything was too much for me. And because more I understand, less I wanted to understand Korean. Because the whole, all the subtle thing is like when you speak French, you think, oh, they are nice to us. But when you really understand, they speak shit to you or they treat you like shit and you have no idea. That's the same for Korean uh, when I was in Korea. But that's, uh, and I think it's good that uh, there is a ask and track and uh, Kung Fa now. It's like the, the new generation of adoptees where Bunyong and Jenny and Kim Stoker, uh, Jane Trenka came in, in the frame and really working on that. So that they, you can talk more about. I can talk the whole time, you know, at my time. <laughs> so now you can tell how they think about adoptees I was just going to pick up on the thing that you said Mm -hmm. when you were talking about the distinction between Ibiyanga and mm. Ibiyangin and how you're, how, how Koreans often see us as children or they infantilize us and I think that's really I don't think that's really changed that much, frankly, because I think so many of the the images of adoptees in the media, of adoption in the media, are of a child, right? You, do- you adopt a child. You don't adopt an adult person. You adopt a child. And so there are all these, and then there's also the, the dominant narrative about adoption is it's about saving a child, helping a child, rescuing a child. And so there's not, I don't really feel like there's an understanding in Korean society of adoptees as adults. I think they just maybe just don't really know what to, to do with us. They, they know how to feel sympathy or compassion for the child or actually more often guilt or shame about the child and about the adoption. But in terms of adoptees as adults, they're just like, I don't, I don't know how to deal with you. I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's I think that's you know so there are still 
lots of images of of adoption with children and there i think adoptees are still infantilized in korean society and in our in my interactions with koreans um uh who don't know me koreans who don't know me who just might see me as an an ibyang ah they would still think of me as a child that mentality because they ibyang ah is the first word that they use to refer to me it it I think it means that in their head they're still thinking of the child that I was and not the adult that I am. It's important to keep in mind that Kimura belonged to a first generation of adoptees who returned to Korea and really worked very hard for with um, to improve um, conditions for adoptees. Um, And then only after that is a new generation, but we often forget the very first generation. Um, And I think maybe from the 2000s, maybe before that, but the narrative have been up for grabs. Um, I don't think we have been able to really get our version out there. Um, And... One example I would say is, as we can see uh, in the law, that now we have more registration, the law is longer, there are more guidelines, but they're really not to our advantage. So looking at birth family search, I mean, 20 years ago, it was like the wild, wild west. Anything could happen. Anything was possible. And that's also why we have friends with stories that, you know, oh, yeah, of course, just got all my papers or I came to the adoption agency and they had already called my mom. So I met her. No problem. Um, (laughs) I don't think those stories we don't hear so much after the law revision. um, We got the guidelines. We got guidelines, which really also we've been talking about for years, for decades, Um, but they weren't really settled or negotiated in our favor. So Now that there are guidelines, what adoption agencies um, choose to do is to interpret them so conservatively that it actually, to some extent, has become more difficult to get information. Because prior to the law, there were no standards to break. Um, Now there is. And so... That's a choice for the power holders to be so stringent or to adhere so much to these guidelines. Um, yeah, that I think some will feel that it has become more difficult, not because of the law, but because of those in power choose to interpret and follow the law, right? And also, that was also the people who really are able to dictate what is being written. Um, when you asked about representation, um, not just cultural representation, but maybe how we're featured in the media, I got to think about 2017, which was when uh, Philip Clay committed suicide. Um, I think that was quite traumatic for all of us who were in Korea. Adding to that irony is um, the day before. In uh, Korea Times, there's this beautiful article 
about adult adoptees who come back to Korea and want to facilitate more adoptions, who have a, taking a huge picture with um, the reverend who runs the illegal baby box. They talk about really how wonderful it is. They're all smiling and holding hands, and this is beautiful. Koreans can't adopt. All adoptees should go overseas, and we're trying to help. Adoption is great. We saw that the next day we get a phone call that we need to go to a funeral. Um, so the discourse that gets to dominate um, very, you know, is really a discourse that is very hard for us to break into. Um, and so it ends up feeling a bit schizophrenic where, you know, we live one way, we live in one reality, um, but what is being told us and what's really being forced on us is so very different. And so obviously we are going to come across as critical and ungrateful and angry. That's really only, I think, because we insist try to insist um, to be true to our experience. Um. Well, and also uh, being angry or being critical is not, is not a bad thing, but it's been used to delegitimize the things that are important to us and are important to our community. And so for so long, adoptees who were doing activism type work were like oh no it's the angry adoptees and we're gonna come and I don't know what they I don't know what they thought we were gonna do like oh we're gonna come and firebomb your your institution or something <laughs> or, or you know and, and I don't think any of us were really had that in, had that intention but but that image of us was so strong and then now, now there's like, um, I was just, just thinking about that slogan that we see all the time, adoption is love, which is kind of, <laughs> and so then I was thinking like, oh, it would be great if we could make a project like adoption is, and then fill in the blank. And then adoption is Adoption is, insert expletive. <laughs> But yeah, I think what Bunyo is saying is 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 true that you know countering that narrative and what Kimura was saying too, countering that narrative is so it's so difficult because it's that's that story is so strong and the images everywhere. But uh, I think there is a, a change also when uh, birth when women could get mm. uh, their own uh, hojok. The family mm -hmm. register, I think it changed a lot because w whether we want to give uh, adoptees right and but birth mother, if they didn't have right, that's the whole way why adoption uh, were like uh, so Confucianist uh, rules in Korean society that really didn't serve uh, the women's right and it's about feminism. So the first thing to understand why it happened is because of that. You know, it's because women couldn't register their own kids on the uh, register they didn't have, and they belonged to a man, and it was so strong. And even though in the mentality, I think it's still 
like that, but at least they have now the the right to uh, register, and then so the kids can go to school and so on. So that's how we have to understand a society that is not like a Western society, you know. So uh, I think it was the, the sorry. Hmm? Literally, children could not legally exist under their mother. Yeah. So an onward mother would have no mm. choice. Mm-hmm. And like a, a father, uncle, or the man in the family would never take care of a kid that is uh, not from, we don't know the father or something. So that's something that I think adoptees didn't understand also that... Uh, Oh, why she abandoned me, but we didn't know the right of women there. So it's a big feminist, uh, and uh, it's it's weird that to understand, to see that many of our adoptive mothers say of them, tell about themselves they are feminists, and my ass, it's like they don't want to help other women. They just want to serve themselves, you know, for uh, have a, a good image of being a family or something. So... I think it really changed a lot for me. It was a very big victory in a way. But even though, uh, but I'm very lucky as a human being to see that when I'm alive, those changes. But it's still a lot of work to do for Korean mentality and society. And yeah. I, mean, I think that idea of, of adoption as a reproductive rights issue, as a women's rights issue, as a feminist issue, hasn't really reached mm-hmm. uh, the mainstream. Like we know, and this the small community of adoptees who are critical of of adoption, who look at adoption critically, might have might know. But I think the larger world doesn't necessarily make that connection. In some cases, I think because they don't want to. Because mm-hmm. that's a hard also, truth yeah. to face. It's yeah. better to be blind. Yeah. Because then they have to take a stand and they would not. Well, and they have to reconcile with the fact that, you know, they might have taken somebody's child from somebody else. And maybe it wasn't Mm -hmm. their intention Mm -hmm. to do so, but it doesn't change the fact Mm -hmm. of how it happened. The whole system. That's an important fact, right, that we all come from families. There is not an orphan, but uh, Mm -hmm. the connection between Mm -hmm. orphan and adoptee um, has been so excellently. <laughs> is that a word? Excellently. It is um, now described, illustrated uh, by Sundu Pate um, in her PhD, where you did have orphans. Yes, during the war, you always have that. That orphan image then really were very cleverly turned into the image of an adoptee. So now when we see an adoptee, we do think that the adoptee is orphan. And we've all been told that, except that when you go back and look at the history books, you know, that's not really what happened. Um, well, and similarly, like the image of our mothers is, you know, there's such a strong stigma against unwed mothers that comes from, you know, this idea that, well, here's a woman who, you know, was irresponsible and didn't want you and, um, just kind of, yeah, made a, a conscious choice to send you for adoption, give you away for adoption. And that is, as we've seen and heard in stories from other adoptees, it's not true. 
just not true. So many thought it was like a placement. So as soon as they signed the paper, they have no right and they didn't know, but it's the same in African countries, in Latina, uh, Latin countries. Or they didn't the fact is that sign the paper with mm-hmm. consciousness. They weren't aware that they were doing it because somebody else maybe did it for yeah. them uh, without their But knowledge. it's always the fault of the woman, but not the father. Or it's like, hello, she, right. she's not Virgin Mary, you know? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Mm. Or the fault of the organizations and the yeah. the the mm. supposedly the groups that are supposed to help mm. women in those situations. Yeah, um, there's been it takes a village normally. There's been like um the the apology to forced adoptions in Australia, and um, there's mm. been all sorts of really harrowing uh, testimony. Hannah, you probably know more about this than me, but you know that women women were drugged on purpose. Um, in the aftermath mm-hmm. of birth, signed papers with no conscious memory of having done so, um, and that's all mm-hmm. documented. But but it doesn't then get uh, extended to international adoption. It's like international adoption is treated, I think, very differently mm-hmm. to uh, domestic adoption in in Australia. But it's also something about race in Australia, like in Canada with the native, the First Nation. It's the same system that uh, you uh, fragilize or you uh, you don't give the right to the woman, and even the the mother thing, uh, the child is dead, and it's like it's so many cases like that. And but also in uh, in England and you know the Commonwealth country have their own things, and they send to each other like uh, far away, so we cannot trace them. That's also a reason. And that's why so many women, white women, want to adopt someone from somewhere else so they don't have to take the shit of the family that they know that we have a family. I was just thinking of the case of that documentary, the KBS documentary from a million years ago. Um, that was, I think it was in 2005, maybe? I still have that documentary. You you did the translation. I think someone did the Korean uh, English translation of the documentary. I have it yeah. on online. Yeah, and there's an example in that documentary of a woman who has just given birth, and she's still kind of coming out of the whatever she was on. Yeah. and and the adoption agency person is right there, right by her side with the paper, asking her to sign it. And, and hospital call uh, those uh, social workers, they call them uh, block sucker. The, the, the adoption agency social worker are known in the hospital as blood sucker, you know. But that's the whole system that permits that also. I was just wondering, going back to um, like adoptees taking over the narrative of adoption in Korea, um, do you think is one of the main issues just that um, most of us don't speak Korean so that when we share our opinions and experiences on, yeah, blogs, podcasts, articles, interviews, whatever, memoirs, that that doesn't reach Korean society because of that language barrier? It's an excuse, I think, because, I mean, yeah, of course, we don't speak as native and uh, we are 
I don't know. Anyway, I know for myself, I'm not good in language anyway. But I think it's, for me, when they complain because I don't speak good Korean, it's, I say it's your fault. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like, it's true. I mean, they, I was, uh, that's how uh, uh, cultural genocide, you know, it's like, and even though some people who, I think the younger, younger you come to Korea, the better you can learn a language. I think, and uh, if you uh, if you are good uh, in languages, even better. But it's like, even though we some people would speak, even Kyopo speak maybe better, but they don't have a voice. Uh, Korean is very racist. That's simply like that. Even we would speak like hundred percent. It's like even like domestic adoptees don't have voices. So it's just an excuse for them to not want to listen to us, but. I'm sure if we we could speak hundred percent well Korean, it still will be uh, we will not be listened because we disturb them in uh, uh, mirroring what they did. Language is a practical. Uh, I think we can look at language as a yeah. practical challenge or obstacle, um, but we definitely come with an inconvenient truth society. So there is no motivation, I think, for society at large to listen to us, to welcome us, to make an avenue for us to speak. So it's really all uphill. Um, clearly, a lot of things are going on in English. And they could just access that. You know, They could just read what we write. They could just listen to what we say. Um, and there are cultural differences that you know, means that they don't really get get what we say um but i'll say it's more that um, i think there is there's an unconscious maybe understanding right there under the surface you know that we we're not we don't fit into this modern narrative you know that the country really prospered um it's so successful it receives recognition on the world stage but you have also sold, you know, maybe 200,000 of your own children. So there needs to be some kind of, I feel, reconciliation with that um, for them to be able to really, to really listen to us, which would mean accept, you know, and welcome us. Um, but for me, there is also a psychological idea of Korean being uh, anyway feeling inferior to uh, many people. And so they have this inferior complex. And if we are Korean, and uh, especially for uh, English native speaker, you dare you Korean and you speak better English than me. You do try to colonize me, or they feel uh, they feel ashamed. And so it's like, how can you talk to me that way? So there is a like a conflict also with them. It's like uh, that's what I could feel with Korean. It's like you try to talk white to us you know so there it's kind of tricky also uh, how of course uh, this uh, we speak a, a different language and so they will uh, go back to how pride they you have to speak Korean and go back to that to to cut a conversation that's how i feel with korean I also think we have to keep in mind that koreans have been bombarded with these very positive images of um, good doers and volunteers um, in disguise of social work uh, from from the Korean War. I mean, they'll go to Simina and that would be where you would 
see the news, right? You see images of wealthy foreigners and wealthy Koreans, um, high-ranking politicians who would donate to child welfare institutions because that's what you do. You know, you you help children, um, you help children in need. That image have really been trained, I guess, not just in Koreans but really in all of us for decades. So for us to this also yeah. Christianity, yeah. So this Christianity is fifty-two percent of uh, Christian uh, Christian in Korea. So it's hello. It's it's like uh, the whole uh, adoption is about that. Is is about saving all the adoption agency. Yeah. So when so it's a mentality when we come back and show you know our truth um, and just speak very honestly, it's not possible to. It's not an alternative story, right? It it really undermines and contradicts what has been said for 70 years. So that needs to be overcome. Um, individuals need to work with themselves to be able to, I think, accept, again, the truth we have experienced. Um, well, and I think there's yeah. no... An uphill battle. <laughs> in... in, in Along with that idea of an adoptee who is successful, the successful adoptee who is lucky to be adopted, who goes to the Western country and now speaks another language and comes back and is kind of exotified in Korea. And, and there's no real understanding for the loss that had to happen in order for that to be possible for that person. The loss of, of our culture and language and family that made us into the so-called successful adoptee. The, the only images of, of the success. And it's not by coincidence right, that we hear these success, success stories. It's not a coincidence. Um, it's very much a deliberate effort. And we can see that from the adoption law where it's actually written into it that adoption agencies are to feature success stories. So I think we want to keep in mind that things don't just happen. There are people in power and they have interests and they are very deliberate in the information that they make and how they publish, publish it, how they share it. Um, so when we study when we I think train educate you know learn our history we have to be aware that um, up until now others have really erected stories that are being heard because obviously it's the winner who writes history so we can't um, can't unconditionally accept that we shouldn't just take that in right we really have as a minority we really have to be critical to the information that we given because it's given to us with a purpose that's um, not been in our favor and that's another reason just coming back to our adoption tuesday event that's another reason why Adoption Truth Day started, why Single Moms Day started, was to counter the, the government's Adoption Day narrative of promoting positive feelings about adoption and promoting domestic adoption and um, not really including any of the other 
people who are involved in that process, adoptees who might have other kinds of stories or unwed mothers or um, other natural family members. So I think that's why also it's important for our Adoption Truth Day conference to have started, to continue on the legacy of the Single Moms Day and all of the other kinds of collective efforts that have come before it to make it happen and um, hopefully to reveal other truths about around our adoptions that and around our adoption history that haven't haven't been investigated yet. For me, I dreamed that we could uh, make adoptees uh, uh, gather enough adoptees to make a class action against our adoption agency. That would be my dream to put down those adoption agencies and get the file in safe space. Ultimately, if we have our complete adoption file, we have all the power. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what but it's about. It's like, I mean, for the adoption agencies, mm-hmm. I don't think it's about so much birth, family, search, and reunion, but it's about power. And the mm-hmm. file is information. Information is power. That's why they can't give it to us because it would cancel them out. Yeah. Right. Um, and prove that they did wrong. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. For us, it really brought home how much specific individuals have generously worked for and poured their energy into the adoptee community. This is part of our collective adoptee history too, and we can't thank our three guests enough for the huge roles they've played in it. Tune in to our next episode for part two of this conversation when we talk about adoptee activism in Korea, what activism is in general, and what our guests have learned over their many years of experience. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We were actually hoping that we'd like recorded when Jenny and Kimura were like speaking in Korean together, like Panmal together, it would have been cute. It's probably good that you did not. (laughs) We were talking shit. (laughs) I I couldn't tell. (laughs) I was like, free Korean lesson, this is good. (laughs) No, maybe it's the one you don't follow. (laughs) We were talking about drinking. Oh. That deserves one episode for, I think, <laughs> one separate episode. Because we so always talk about drinking. <laughs> <laughs> because it's necessary. Yeah, of course. I really agree. <laughs>